You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast on a special flashback edition where we take a look at some of the best interviews and podcasts that we had on Block Talk Radio. You may hear the program called Redeeming Truth Radio, but no worries, you're still listening to the same podcast. Now join us now as we go back in the halls of history to the best of the Bellator Christie Podcast on Block Talk Radio. Picking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host for the next 30 minutes. If we seek to take Christian truth into the arena of ideas, yours truly, Brian Chilton. The issue of election is perhaps the most controversial topic in all of uh, theological discourse. One of the key questions in the election debate pertains to the level of freedom that people hold. Do people have the freedom to respond to the grace of God, or is everything predetermined? Our guest today approaches the issue from a different and important perspective. Dr. Chad Thornhill examines the issue of election from the understanding of Second Temple Judaism in his book, The Chosen People, All Election and Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism influenced the understanding of the New Testament writers that such perspective is critical to our understanding of the issue. Dr. Thornhill discusses some of his findings in his book, and uh, he received his Ph.D. in Theology and Apologetics from Liberty University School of Divinity in 2012, his M.D. and M.A. in Religion also from Liberty University School of Divinity. Dr. Thornhill is a Chair of Theological Studies and also serves in the, as an Associate Professor of Apologetics and Biblical Studies Liberty University. In addition to his studies and time with his wife and children, he is also an athlete in the American Ninja Warrior Games. So we want to welcome with us today Dr. Chad Thornhill. Dr. Thornhill, again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad to uh, be here with you. And uh, we were talking before the show about uh, the American Ninja Warrior. I tell you, I am really impressed uh, with the athleticism of, of, of you and the competitors who, who were able to do some, to me, mind-boggling things, uh, being able to, uh, upper body strength, just phenomenal upper body strength to do the things that you do uh, in those competitions. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I kind of view it like a big playground. Um, so I'll, I'll qualify it by saying I haven't actually been a competitor yet on the show. Uh, I have done some, some competitions at local uh, at local gyms in the area of Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, um, but I was a tester in Atlanta, so I did get on the Atlanta uh, the Atlanta course earlier this year. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, um, which is what what makes it fun. And some of the folks that you see frequently on the show are on there frequently for a reason because they have uh, what seem to be some superhuman. Um, strength ability. So it, it is. It, it's a fun thing to be a part of. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you will, uh, as as we often ask our, our our guests on the show, if you would, would you please share your testimony and how you came to know Christ as Savior? Absolutely. I um, sort of a long story, so I'll I'll make it short. But I grew up um, from the age of about five to. Um, 
about 11 or so, uh, attending a Christian school. Um, we attended, my family attended church. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that uh, we got a little more consistently involved. But I remember as, uh, as a kindergartner in a chapel service, um, praying to receive Christ. And I don't remember a whole lot about it other than that it happened. So kind of had this, which is not an uncommon thing. I've uh, known people that have had similar stories, but, um, you know, kind of had this lingering ongoing question as to whether or not I knew, I understood, you know, how much do you need to know in order to, to actually commit yourself to Christ. And so um, struggled <clears throat> with assurance and, and that sort of thing for a while as, uh, as an adolescent and a teenager. I uh, was baptized at 16, and um, really from that point forward, feel like um, I had kind of solidified what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And obviously, it's something that we grow in over time, so um, wouldn't consider now probably my definition of what that means would not have been the same as a 16-year-old and certainly not as a 5-year-old. Um, so I've, I've had sort of a, you know, some people have this, this very dramatic point in time conversion and others have what seems to be a bit of a longer story and process. Um, and, and that is more akin to my own journey. Amen. And I can, I can vouch, I can vouch for that too. Um, you know, uh, coming to, to faith early on and, and then, you know, like, like you say, the process and, and I think a lot of people would, would identify that, most certainly. Well, you recently wrote a book entitled Chosen People, Election, Paul, and Second Temple Judaism. You researched the issue of election, and anytime anyone, seems like anytime begins studying theology, y'all, this, this is one of the, the, the first topics, it seems like it comes up, the issue of election. But you, uh, you approach this from a different perspective as you research the views of Second Temple Judaism and its impact upon the Apostle Paul. Uh, what did you find pertaining to these viewpoints as it, as it relates to election uh, in, in the uh, second in typical Judaism time, especially in the intertestamental writings? Yeah, so what initially uh, got me thinking on the topic was that I just honestly had not seen anyone flesh out a study of Paul or the New Testament writers in general on that issue um, from that context. And it's, I think, necessary from my perspective in that we really get, I think, some important windows into understanding the thoughts of the New Testament writers when we're familiar with the Second Temple Jewish context. So I like to put it this way, you know, when you read scripture, you're always putting it in some kind of context, whether you know it or not. And often what we do before we um, are, before we know to think any differently is we end up putting it in our context. So, you know, we see a we in a passage or an I or a you, and we think it's talking about us or talking directly to us, and we don't often step back and, and situate it in its original context. So, uh, you know, conservative uh, New Testament commentators often talk about, and the, the the terms aren't maybe thrown around as much as they were a while ago, but a lot of people are familiar with what's referred to as grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. And 
what I had noticed is that often the historical element to that, which by it we mean thinking about what the Bible meant in its original uh, context, isn't really that fully explored. Um, so as I started to get into the study of Second Temple Judaism, which we primarily learn about in terms of, of primary sources from the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there are some other writings sometimes that feed into that, but those are the main ones. I found um, a couple of things that kind of tease out into the major chapters in the book. Um, one, when we look at the Old Testament, they talked about election not primarily in terms of God choosing people to be saved, which is usually what comes to mind when we're talking about that discussion in, in Christian theology. So the story of election really starts with Abraham, with God choosing Abraham and promising to him to make a nation out of him. And then we have in Exodus and Deuteronomy some really key passages. And it seems to me like the, the major focus in the Old Testament is upon God's choice of Israel as his people. And that doesn't necessarily entail the... Uh, systematic theology questions that often get associated with, with the word election. So there's what I'd refer to as, a I think, largely a collective dimension to election in the Old Testament, um, what's sometimes referred to as a corporate dimension. And that seems to hold up, I think, pretty consistently in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, when there is talk about specific individuals using some type of cho choosing or electing uh, vocabulary, what generally is the case is God selecting people for particular roles or vocations. So Moses, for example, being uh, chosen as God's representative, or Aaron being chosen as priest, or David being chosen as king. Um, so there's a more of, a, I think, a sense of what we might call calling, uh, so to speak, where God calls people into certain roles when it relates to individuals. Um, the other thing that I think is important about the Second Temple context is where the debate seemed to be is not on what election meant in terms of how God saves people, but rather how... Uh, how we might identify who God's people actually are. So there's, there's actually some, some tension or some conflict that we see in Second Temple literature where they are defining what it means to be God's people in different and conflicting ways. So, for, for example, uh, there's a great little line in First in Maccabees which says something to the effect of all Israel mourn the death of, of one of the Maccabean brothers. And what we read about in First Maccabees is not all Jews were actually supportive of the Maccabean revolt. And so they, they seem to be using Israel there as a way of saying basically all those who are really God's people are those who support the Maccabees or the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, we find other texts, lots of other texts, that are critical of the Hasmonean dynasty, are critical of the Jerusalem leadership during that period, and think that actually if you're supportive of them because they were viewed as being corrupt, that you are not in God's people, uh, that, that that would indicate that 
you are on the opposite side of things. So I think where we see that these conflicts actually illustrates that there was what I would refer to as a debate about how to know who God's people actually were. Uh, so election in Judaism, I think, largely is focused on the collective and largely is answering the question, not how do people become God's people, but who are God's people? So when Paul in Romans 9 to 11, for example, brings up this question specifically in the context of looking at the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the people of God, I think all of that is really the backstory to what is going on in Paul and I think informs and helps us to understand what exactly Paul intended by the conversation, which I take to be different from how it has been interpreted often from, you know, Augustine basically forward. Yeah, and this, and this, and I notice you, you uh, just described this as corporate elect or corporate representation or corporate election. How how would this compare and contrast with, say, like the Calvinist understanding of of individual election uh, as it pertains to salvation, or does it even would you say it even addresses uh, that aspect? Yeah. So, um, well, first, just to qualify, um, so. There's, you know, there's sort of a range of thought within Calvinism um, or within Reformed theology as to exactly how to discuss or, or deal with this question. Um, the typical view that is associated with Calvinism is something like double predestination. Um, but again, there are, there are Calvinists who would not necessarily so hold to, to that doctrine. But that, that basically said God determines who is in and who is who is out, who's going to be saved and who is going to be judged. And a, a lot of the uh, ground for that in terms of biblical interpretation really comes from Romans 9, and in particular uh, from Romans 9, about 10 to 24 or so. So verses that say things like, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, or God... Uh, chooses whom he will, and he hardens whom he will. And those are often interpreted basically as, as saying what that doctrine of double predestination would say, that it's up to God um, to determine who gets saved, not up to us. The, the way that I um, address that passage by putting it in the context of Second Temple Judaism, and Paul was a Second Temple Jew, he was a Jew who lived during the Second Temple period, so that's you know, his appropriate context, is I think Paul's actually really wrestling, and I think he shows his cards more directly in verse 24, which is sort of the, the initial um, climax of that section, that he's really dealing with the issue of how do we process the fact that all of these Gentiles, a significant number of Gentiles, have given allegiance to Jesus uh, when so many Jews have not. And it becomes less a question about how does God save people than we have an issue here because of how we thought things were going to pan out theologically based on the Old Testament that, that really needs to be addressed. And so, um, you know, the potter and the clay language and, and the contrast of Moses and Pharaoh I think is Paul actually affirming, basically saying, if God wants to include Gentiles in his people, and if many of the, of the Jews haven't responded and thus are not, 
that's up to God. So that's, that's I think, where the sovereignty assertion comes in, not God, God will save who he wants to and condemn who he wants to. Um, so there are, there are some Reformed theologians who, uh, at least as they deal with Romans 9, who come to that kind of interpretation. Um, so it's not simply a Reformed versus non-Reformed thing. So um, N.T. Wright, for example, takes what appears to be more of a collectivist interpretation of Romans 9. Uh, Tom Holland is another Reformed commentator who does something similar, and there, there are a number of others. Um, so in terms of actually interpreting that passage, which largely is part of the basis, it's one of the key texts for the basis of the, the doctrine of double predestination, and more and more commentators and New Testament scholars, I think, are in contextualizing Paul historically, coming to an interpretation that is more akin to, I think, what I've developed than to the traditional way that those verses often are handled. Absolutely, and I, th I think, quite honestly, going back and reading the text, having read your book, it to me it, it made the passage make a lot more sense. So the, the passage made a lot more sense understanding it in that context than than necessarily focusing just on, like you say, the the issue of predestination. And, you know, I know later in your book, I, I really like the both-and view that you use pertaining to God's sovereignty and human freedom. Um, how, how does this help us, uh, you know, in understanding that both God is sovereign and that humans have this freedom to respond, freedom to act, how does this view help us interpret more difficult and controversial passages of Scripture in the New Testament, uh, such as the Romans passage that you just mentioned? Yeah, I think, I think one of the important things is we, we often tend to isolate uh, verses or even small sections of verses. And I think one of the things I try to do and I, I try to uh, ingrain in my students is to think about really large sections of context. So if, they're, you know, if your interpretation seems to make sense, let's say you're looking at a passage of, you know, let's say 15 verses. If your interpretation is really focusing on four or five of those verses and seems to make pretty good sense of them and isn't making great sense of the other ten or so, then you probably need to step back and, you know, and, and think through the whole of it. Um, so trying to think in, in larger chunks of context, I think, is, is one of the things that um, is reinforced by it. And I think it also underscores that we often find, um, you know, these tensions, not just with um, sovereignty and freedom, but something, for example, like, uh, you know, Jesus' two natures or, or the Trinity, which are difficult doctrines. And I think it reaffirms the importance of taking all of Scripture um, seriously. Sometimes we like to really elevate the pieces that fit with, with our theological system, and we kind of brush over the ones that don't. Um, and it seems to me in history, when you look back at, you know, at the, at the church, um, a lot of the controversies and, and issues that ended up addressing or, or declaring certain viewpoints heretical are when we have two tensions, you know, three divine persons and one divine essence. We have this, this tension... God, you know, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are 
presented, it appears, as all divine, but yet we have affirmations of there's only one God. So, you know, what do we do with that? And if we move too far in either direction, we end up with what the early church considered to be some sort of heresy. The same thing with Jesus' two natures. He, he, he's described in some places as it appears to be divine, and in some places as it appears to be very, very human. If we go in either direction too hard, again, we end up in places that the early church would have said are, are heretical. Um, so I think what it also helps us to do is to try to force us to step back and think about the broader sweep of Scripture um, and how it complements uh, itself, so to speak, um, and to appreciate when these kind of both-and tensions are present, to appreciate both sides of it rather than to try it to elevate one over the other. Absolutely, and I, and I really love how you put that. It, it reminds me, I, I remember reading in, I think it's Norman Geisler's Systematic Theology, where he talks about uh, the fact that we are dealing with the divine, that we could anticipate the, a mystery uh, taking place in several things. Not, not that there's, it doesn't mean that there's a, that there's a logical inconsistency, it just means that, that this is the mystery kind of above and beyond what we as human beings could really rationally understand, such as like the Trinity or and, and, and the, really probably even the sovereignty, free, human freedom as it correlates to one another. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of times, and like you say, you know, we like to compartmentalize, it seems like, and, and, and come down to uh, different systematic paradigms. Is there a paradigm that fits the Second Temple Judaism, um, or, 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 is it, or is it broader than the paradigms that are out there, such as Calvinism, Arminianism, Holonism, and so on and so forth? I guess what I'm asking is, is there a system that best fits the model that you present in the chosen people? Um, I, I'll, I'll say it this way. There are systems that tend to gravitate more towards what I have developed than others. Um, so in terms of, a, you know, a corporate understanding of election, um, that certainly historically has been more associated with Arminianism than it has, has been with Calvinism. Um, that's not to say every Arminian holds to corporate election because they don't. And that's not to say that there aren't some who would call themselves Calvinists who don't hold the corporate election because there are. Um, so it, it more has fit in that camp. Um, in terms of, you know, how that corresponds to Second Temple uh, Judaism, again, we find, we find variations in Second Temple Judaism that I think in some ways um, match variations that we see in our theologies today. Um, so some would suggest, and, I, and I, I differ slightly on this, but some would suggest, uh, actually most uh, would suggest that the Qumran community who authored the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls was, was more deterministic. So in a sense, you know, they might be the ancient Jewish counterparts to Calvinism. And the Pharisees were... Uh, able to, you know, hold, affirm both things. They, they, they affirmed some tension between uh, divine sovereignty and human freedom. And so they might be, you know, the counterpart to the Arminians. And then 
the Sadducees, uh, Josephus says, basically elevated free will over everything else. So we might say that they were the semi-Pelagians of the, of the ancient Jewish world. Um, so there's, there's some, I think, some comparability in some ways. Um, but often I think the, the bigger thing, and again, one thing that I challenge my students with is, is to think forwards instead of thinking backwards. Um, so a lot of how we do theology at times, and we're all guilty of this, I'm guilty of this, is we come from our starting point first. Um, so we have some modern question or issue or agenda or something that's been like this, you know, an issue in, in church history for at least 1,600 years or so, um, and certainly for the last five or six. And we, we kind of start there and work back into Scripture um, what I what I tried to do, um, and what I hope I do in all of my interpretive efforts, is to start um, there and move forward. So to start with again, what was the context in which the New Testament writers are operating? Um, how does Judaism? How does understanding the Greco-Roman world inform what exactly they're saying? And to move forward then from a historically grounded sense of the meaning of the New Testament to the questions that we have. Because um, often when we move backwards, our question then ends up driving our interpretation instead of us just simply trying to figure out what Paul was saying to the Romans or trying to figure out um, you know, what Mark was saying in his gospel. And... So I think, I think um, rather than saying, what's the best system out there, you know, start with what's going on in each of the books of the New Testament or in this particular section, what's the best way to interpret this in light of its historical circumstances, and then how does that inform how we think and live today? Um, and, and to me, that's a healthier way, and it, it, it doesn't, it's not some sort of, you know, magic key that's going to answer all the questions for us. But I think it's to, to me, it's been a more profitable way of approaching some of these theological issues. Well, I think you're absolutely right because I've seen, you know, in, in it's, it's been true of all all camps. Not saying that any one camp, but I've seen some some very bizarre interpretations of of some biblical passages where it seems to be that there that a person is trying to fit that into a systematic theological theological paradigm rather than just taking the text and seeing what it is the, the writer was trying to say to the people to whom he was addressing. So I, I think that's a wonderful piece of advice uh, right there. Uh, switching gears, you have a book forthcoming September 20th, 2016, entitled Greek for Everyone, Introductory Greek for Bible Study and Application, uh, which is now available for pre-ordering on Amazon.com. Uh, I was blessed to have you as a New Testament Greek professor. Uh, you were very patient, very kind, <laughs> and uh, I, I actually, I loved, I loved learning the language. Uh, what are some benefits that a person has in learning New Testament Greek? Yeah, one of my colleagues, and I, I always try to cite him when I steal this from him, but um, Kevin King, who teaches church history and, and theology and homiletics here at, uh, at Liberty's School of Divinity, uh, likes to say it's like it's like going from black and white to high def. Um, 
so I think that that's a you know that's a kind of a helpful way of putting it. The you know the the basic the basic fact is we have uh, and I'll preface it by saying this: we have a lot of very very good translations that are available today that I think in their own way do a very good job of representing the the Greek text in English. Um, so some of some of my favorites that I use, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, basis are uh, New American Standard, the NIV, um, the Net Bible is one that I I've uh, grown to appreciate a lot. The New English Translation, the uh, Lexham English Bible, which is published by Logos, I think is a very good translation, and there are there are definitely others out there as well. Um, those are the ones that I use the most. But when you kind of get behind the scenes, when you get under the hood, so to speak, um, you realize a couple of things. One, you realize that because no two languages are identical, there are simply things that a translation cannot adequately bring over without being completely convoluted and cumbersome. Um, so you, you kind of have this draw where you either sacrifice it being readable, or you try to fit everything that it, it could mean or could possibly mean into your translation. And, and there aren't many translators that opt for the latter because they want their translation to be readable. They don't want to make the Bible seem more confusing than often it already is to people. Um, the other thing that you notice is there are certain themes that pop out that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. So, uh, for example, um, in some of the um, healing passages in the Gospels where Jesus tells people to get up. So the, the man who is paralyzed and he's lowered through the roof on the, on the, you know, the mat or whatever, however we, we, whatever word we use. When Jesus tells him to get up, it's the same word that's used for Jesus being raised. <laughs> it, it has the same root. Uh, or this, it comes from the same word group as one of our words that's used to describe the resurrection. So there's sort of this implicit um, um, layering of the power that Jesus has for him to stand up is the power of God that's going to make Jesus stand up. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's little things like that that you're just not going to see in the translation. And the, and the other thing is with... You know, in particular with how verbs um, work in Greek and how some of the noun cases work in Greek, there are actually um, a number of interpretive options often that are available that you don't really know are available until you've studied the language some. Um, so, you know, the genitive case, for example, is, is the most notorious. It's a really flexible case. Um, one grammarian assigns like 36 different categories of function to the genitive case. And so when we see this little word of in our translations, you know, that of could actually mean a lot of different things. And sometimes it doesn't make that much of a significant difference in how we translate uh, or interpret a passage, but sometimes it, it can make a very significant difference. Um, so there's, there's really a richness and a complexity to the text that comes out um, when you've been exposed to the languages, and, and the same is true of, of Hebrew as well, that you simply wouldn't be aware of. 
So our translations, I think, are very good. I think they're very helpful. Um, but there's also, you know, several levels of things that you just aren't able to see without having some exposure to to the original languages. It blew my mind seeing all the variations and, and the depth that were in the, the that are in the Greek verb. I mean, that that just it blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. Greek verbs are incredibly complicated. Last but certainly not least, what can readers expect to find in your latest book? Is is this an introductory uh, level Greek study, or what, what can they expect to find in your latest book? So the uh, the book basically has two sections. One is a, uh, an exposure to some of the basic uh, foundational things in Greek, and the second is principles for uh, Bible study and application, uh, as it's referred to in, in the title, what we might call sort of introduction to hermeneutics. Um, the first part, the the way that the book approaches it is really for the person who is not going to develop into a, an expert uh, in the languages. So it takes what I call a very functional approach to learning Greek. Um, the approach that that you would have taken, uh, that many, that most seminarians take, uh, is you learn a lot of vocabulary, uh, you memorize a whole bunch of paradigms, you memorize a whole bunch of endings, you know, you know, what every morpheme signifies, and as a result, you're able to really develop, you know, a decent level of, of reading comp uh, competency, and, you know, that varies from, from person to person, and it, it really varies with how much you keep using it more than anything. Um, right. But rather than that approach, what the book does is recognizing that not only through software programs like Logos and Accordance and BibleWorks and others, where a lot of the uh, dirty work, so to speak, of grammar and, and morphology is already done for you. You can just you know, click on a word or hover your mouse over it and you get all of that information without having to memorize the paradigms. Um, but also there are a, are a number of websites that actually do that for you as well for free. So I, I expose folks um, to those in my book with the goal of helping them know how to use them. And instead of, instead of developing reading fluency, what I hope to do is to basically give them the interpretive categories, okay? So this is, you know, an aorist imperative. Um, you know, that's great if we know this isn't an aorist imperative, but do we know why that might be important, um, if it's important at all? And, you know, this is a present participle. What's significant about that? So it really, it really serves less as a grammar than as a very light sort of syntax um, to help people not just, be able to see a Greek word and say this is, you know, nominative, masculine, singular. Um, but to look at a text, to be able to know what the terminology means and to know how to use that as they, um, as they study the New Testament. So it, it, I think, is a book that hopefully is going to be valuable for, you know, for college students and even for seminary students. But ultimately, my hope is, is more broadly than that to equip pastors 
either with a refresher or you know maybe a first time exposure to the language uh, and ultimately to to equip lay people with some tools to help them dig into the text a little bit more as well. Amen. Well, Dr. Thornhill, our time, believe it or not, is about, uh, it, it is up. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. We'll have to get you back on here again sometime real soon. Yeah, I'd be glad to. This Thank is, you again for the invite. Oh, anytime, anytime. Well, for Dr. Chad Thornhill, be sure to go by and pick his books up. Uh, I, I can tell you I have read through uh, his book, The Chosen People, uh, Paul Election and the Second Temple Judaism. You need to go get that copy, your copy of that book. It's a wonderful book. It's a very important book. And, in fact, I have to have this bragging. I think it's sheer genius uh, looking at uh, the, the uh, issue from this perspective. And it's, it's a book that was... Uh, much needed. So go get your copy today. Also, his newest book available uh, September 20th, Greek for Everyone, Introductory Greek for Bible Study and Application. Uh, go by and get your copy. Uh, coming up September 20th, they're already available now for pre-order on Amazon.com. Well, for Dr. Chad Thornhill, this has been Brian Children saying God bless, and we'll see you back next time. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. is God? What is He like? How can we know? The answers you give to these questions will have a tremendous impact on your worship, discipleship, apologetics, and evangelism. Faulty ideas about God are permeating both the church and the culture. It's time to get back to the basics of understanding the existence and nature of the God who is. Marking the 25th year of this annual event, Southern Evangelical Seminary's National Conference on Christian Apologetics returns to Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina with an all-star lineup of some of the finest Christian minds in the world to explore this incredibly important topic. Join us October 12th through 13th, 2018 at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Among the 65 speakers at the event include Ravi Zacharias of RZIM, Josh McDowell of Josh McDowell Ministries, Chip Ingram of Living on the Edge, Gary Habermas of Liberty University, Natasha Crane, Richard Land, and many, many more. Ticket prices before August 1st are $75 for adults, $45 for students. After August 1st, the tickets go up to $85 for adults, $55 for regular price. Save an extra 5% per ticket when you register by May 1st. Group, homeschool, Christian school, and skeptic discounts are available. Call for details. 
by dialing 1-800-77-TRUTH, extension 201. Once again, that's 1-800-77-TRUTH, extension 201. Or go to conference.ses.edu. The 25th anniversary of the National Conference on Christian Apologetics will be October 12th and 13th at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hope to see you there. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to true north. The Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of BellatorChristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision. Make it plain. We're training champions to change the world. That vision of training champions for Christ to change the world is the foundation of Liberty University. It always has been, and it always will be. Everything we are today is built upon it. But while our vision hasn't changed since 1971, the world around us has. Fewer and fewer people understand what we mean when we say train champions for Christ. So we show them. We show them what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lens of academics, athletics, through the way we have fun and the way we serve one another and the world. We show them that we the faithful, the bold, the united, and the brave are also we the creators, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the leaders. We the champions are committed to tackling the issues of our time with integrity and prayer. Our vision hasn't changed. It has strengthened, broadened, expanded. It has grown into over 550 programs of study, reaching into over 80 countries, uniting over 100,000 students into a beautifully diverse family with a singular vision. 
we the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge. Do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless, bring healing to the hurting, fight for the oppressed, defend freedom, defy stereotypes, and follow God's call wherever it may be. Find out more about Liberty University by visiting liberty.edu.